So imagine with me for a moment that the kingdom of God is a literal place, a palace, an actual place where you go. And around this palace, the kingdom of God, is a moat. And outside of the moat are a bunch of orphans. And the orphans are scattered all about, and they're refusing the invitation to come into the palace and be heirs. Because entering this kingdom of God requires something. It costs something. At the drawbridge to get over the moat, you have to hand over all your food to the beggar who's sitting there. And to enter into the next part of the palace, you have to wash a man's feet. And to go into the middle of the palace, the front entry room, you have to sell all that you have. So there's these orphans all around the outside of this palace refusing the invitation to come in. They wonder if I have to wash a man's feet and give up my food and sell all I have, what will be asked of me to get near the royal throne, let alone be seated next to the king? So all these orphans are scattered around outside, clutching onto a few little pennies that they have, scoffing at the demands to do these things because surely these things are beneath them. We're in this series called orphans to heirs, and we're talking about how we can be adopted into the family of God, but continue to live with an orphan spirit. You can be adopted into the family of God through what Christ has done and continue to live with an orphan spirit. What does an orphan spirit look like? It looks like isolation and anxiety and selfishness and weakness. What does the spirit of an heir, a co-heir with Christ look like? It looks like intimacy and assurance and servanthood and that of a warrior. So today we're looking at selfishness to servanthood. That an orphan acts selfishly because they're thinking, these two pennies is all I have and I got to take care of myself. There is no one else who will take care of me. So I have to clutch and cling to what I have. But an heir, an heir can live in servanthood because they know there's someone providing for them. Selfishness says, I am at the center of the universe and everything in my life revolves around me. It revolves around me self-actualizing, becoming my best self now. It has to do with me experiencing my best life now, living my life to the max. So if I'm at the center of the universe... I will only commit to things so long as they work for me. And the minute something doesn't work for me anymore, I trade up, I move on, I chase the next opportunity because my life is about me. Servanthood, on the other hand, says Christ is at the center of the universe and the center of my life, not me. So my life can be lived in service to God and others because I'm not at the center of my life. The Apostle Paul said this, Christ's love 
compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's a picture of servanthood. I'm no longer chasing all the things that will fulfill me. I have died with Christ, and now I live my life with him, raised in new life. We all deal with selfishness more than we like to admit, and it impacts our lives more than we tend to realize. We tend to not think of ourselves as selfish, but think of those around us as pretty self-absorbed. So in an article in the New York Times called I'm Okay, You're Selfish, it said that only 17% of people will say I'm overly concerned with myself, but 60% think that most people are overly concerned with themselves. In his book Road to Character, David Brooks documents these different examples, a lot of data that shows how our culture has made this huge shift from a culture of what might have been considered a culture of humility, where we valued humility, we thought of that as a virtue, to what he calls the big me. Culture used to think and encourage people to think humbly of themselves. But today, our culture encourages us to think of ourselves at the center, at the center of our lives, at the center of the universe. So he gives different examples. Like, for example, he says the word fame Fame used to rank very low on life ambition when surveyed, when people were surveyed, uh, people would rank fame very low. So in 1976, there was a survey that asked people to list their life goals. And fame as a life goal came up 15th out of 16, very close to the bottom. But by 2007, 51% of young people reported that being famous was one of their top personal goals. So in one study, there were middle school girls, and they were asked uh, who they would most like to have dinner with. And at the time, Jennifer Lopez was number one, Jesus Christ was number two, and Paris Hilton was number three. So the girls were then asked which of the following jobs they would like to have. And nearly twice as many said they would rather be a personal assistant to someone famous like Justin Bieber than the president of Harvard. But to be fair, probably the president of Harvard would like to be Justin Bieber's personal assistant too. <laughs> but everywhere we are looking, in magazines and movies and curriculums, we find this message. You are special. Trust yourself. Be true to you. Be true, figure out what you're feeling. Be true to your feelings. Be true to you. Pixar, Disney, constantly telling kids how wonderful they are, how they should chart their own course, follow their passions. Because you're great and you should be the center of the universe. So this has been lifted up. Even uh, in David Brooks' book, he talks about the Girl Scout handbook and how back in the day, the Girl Scouts would teach, they would preach in their, in their handbook, 
this ethic of self-sacrifice. They would teach girls in Girl Scouts, they would say the number one barrier to your happiness is thinking too much about yourself and over-desire to care about what others think about you. That is in the way of your happiness. That's what they used to think. But by 1980, the tone of the Girl Scout handbook was very different. It read this way. You make the difference. Do you see the shift? It told girls to pay more attention to themselves. Figure out what you're feeling, how you can be more in touch with you. In other words, put yourself at the center of the stage. In our passage, Jesus says the opposite. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel will save it. He's talking about the life that is truly life in the kingdom. So a question for us is, where do you get your life? Do you get it from the next purchase? The next acquisition? The next success? Do you get it from your career, your relationships? Where do you get your life? Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel will save it. This is the ethic of the kingdom of God. It is not one of selfishness. That is the value of an orphan, the mindset of an orphan, the experience of an orphan. But a co-heir is a person who lives their life in service of God and others because they know they don't need to sit and take care of themselves. They have the God of the universe walking with them step by step, moment by moment, breath by breath every day. And he is preparing wonderful things for them. So in this passage Susan just read, James and John come to Jesus and they say, we have this one request. Can we sit at your right and your left? In other words, can we have the seats of honor at the table? They are totally blind to what Jesus has been saying was about to happen. And their self-centeredness, their selfishness, causes divisions among their peers. So the passage, passage says that the other ten disciples were indignant at them. Most commentators would say they weren't indignant that James and John asked. They were mad that they didn't get there to ask first. Because we all have this self-serving bent in us. When it comes to selfishness, there is this divisive, relationship-destroying nature to living for ourselves. And here is why. Because our desire for power, our desire for dominating, focuses our attention on ourselves, and that kills love because the very nature of love is to be other-oriented. So when I'm all focused on myself, it kills love because to love is to notice the other, to care for the other, to be focused on the other. The world says, focus on yourself, build your personal brand, live your best life now, live life to the max, put yourself on the center stage. Jesus 
says, lay down your life, wash another person's feet, go sell all you have and follow me. Then you'll find life, the life that is truly life in the kingdom. So this is the avenue, perhaps more than any other, that takes us deeper into the kingdom of God and the experience of being an heir. It is not so much a command as it is a description of the way things are in the kingdom of God. So we don't earn our way into the kingdom of God through acts of service. We don't get a good grade or a bad grade based on how selflessly we live. It is not so much a command as it is a description. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. So you will effectively bring yourself into a deeper experience of the kingdom by putting others first, or in that absence of that, you will retreat from an experience of living in the kingdom of God. So if the kingdom of God is that literal palace surrounded by a moat, and orphans are all around outside, clutching onto their pennies, refusing the invitation into this kingdom to live as heirs, where are you? in that picture. I heard a fabulous sermon this past week by Greg Boyd, and the thoughts impacted me so much, I want to share several of them with you um, in the end here. He was just talking about how we can experience uh, things only to the degree that we passionately commit ourselves to them. So, for example, you can only know love by experiencing love. You, you don't know love by just reading about love in a book. You know love to the degree that you passionately commit yourself to love someone. And the same can be true of our relationship with God. You can read about a relationship with God, but you really only know it to the extent that you commit yourself passionately to it. These things, the best things in life, can only be experienced from the inside. We only become our true selves, our authentic selves, by our commitments. So to the extent that you commit yourself to something is the extent to which you experience that thing. We tend to think, I'll figure out by myself who I really am, who my authentic self is. I'll figure out who I truly am, and then I'll make commitments. But actually, we become our true selves, our authentic selves, through our commitments. And to the degree that we commit to things is the degree to which we experience them. So selfishness puts me at the center stage. My life is all about me. And if my life is all about me, I am only going to commit to things that serve me. And when they s seem to cease to stop, you know, cease serving me, I'm going to move on. I'm going to trade up. I'm going to chase the next opportunity. Because it's not working for me anymore. How many times have we said or have you heard, you know, that's just not working for me anymore? See, when I'm at the center, it's kind of a legitimate thing to say. It's just not working for me anymore. So I'm going to constantly be trading up 
chasing the next opportunity in an attempt to fulfill this hunger inside. Jesus would say, those who lose their life are going to find it. What's that all about? It's about God is at the center stage of my life, not me. So my life can be lived in service to God and others in this higher purpose. When the most important thing is self-actualizing, we actually don't really commit to anything because we only commit to things so long as they work for us, and then we move on. And here's the problem. Nothing in this world ultimately fulfills the deep hungers in our heart. When we have this hunger for belonging, for significance, for security, and we're chasing, chasing, chasing these things, and nothing in this world ultimately satisfies them. So how many times have you been like, I so want to buy that whatever thing, and you're wanting it and thinking about it and wanting it and thinking about it, and then you buy it, and then it's like, eh. See, because it doesn't ultimately fulfill the longing of your heart. Only God can ultimately fulfill and fill our deepest longings. And often our allegiance is just divided. Like, I want to serve God, but I want to advance myself. The problem with that is I will only experience my relationship with God to the degree that I commit to it. So when my allegiance is divided, I want to serve God, but I want to also advance myself. I can't fully experience the kingdom of God. It's going to be experienced to the degree that I passionately commit myself to it. I'll never get the full, profound meaning from life. I'll never experience the abundant life Jesus really spoke about when my allegiance is divided. This is why deep, enduring friendship is increasingly so rare. Because we're constantly chasing opportunity and constantly trading up. We have this hesitancy to commit ourselves fully to anything because, number one, because there's just so many options. There are so many, many options. And we're always chasing the next thing. See, to commit myself to one thing when there's a ton of options is a risk. It's a leap of faith. It's a create some anxiety. Because to choose the one person means no to the rest of the people. And what if I chose wrong? Or what if something better is out there? So it creates that anxiety. And so we're constantly, when we're at the center, trading up for the next thing, pursuing the next opportunity. You have to leap in one direction when there are a bunch of possibilities in order to fully experience. And the average person will move like 11 or 12 times in a lifetime because we just live in this age of options. We can live wherever we want. We can change jobs. We can change friends. We can change churches. So we're constantly on that wheel. I, uh, I remember when I was a kid, my dad, like in fifth grade, he got a promotion um, in the company that he was working for that would have uh, moved our family from Milwaukee, where we were living, to Chicago. And I remember he picked me up. Uh, we, we went out to eat, and he told me, got this promotion. Um, our family may be moving to Chicago. I remember the anxiety that that 
created inside me at that moment. Like, my friends are going to change, my ho- different house, different town, different church. And, uh, you know, in the end, so fascinating, my dad actually said no to that. So unusual, so rare. And as an adult, I've had a chance to ask him about that. And, you know, he, he just said, my commitment was to my family, and I knew that that move, even though it was more money, even though it was a greater opportunity, even though it would have been a bigger personal challenge, I knew that that would negatively impact my family for a variety of reasons. There were many reasons why he saw that as a bad move for his family. I heard a story about someone recently who they just, the small group of people just decided to stay together in the same town and only consider jobs and only consider houses in that town. How unusual. See, to commit myself to one thing, it means to say no to other things. To commit myself to following God in the way of Jesus. I will only fully experience the abundant life Jesus spoke about to the degree that I passionately commit my life to following him. And when I'm divided, when my allegiance is divided, I just don't fully experience that life that he spoke of. Selfishness puts me at the center. Servanthood puts God at the center. Now, not saying that you should never move I am not saying you should never change jobs or walk away from certain relationships, but here's the question. Are you doing that out of a selfish pursuit? Or are you doing that because God is leading you? If God is leading you, go. But if you're just looking for the next most spectacular thing, to fulfill this hunger inside, it won't. And you'll keep trading up and trading up and never know from the inside what can only be known through passionate commitment. Ambition. Ambition is not a bad thing. Some of you have ambition in spades. And ambition is not a bad thing. It's just that ambition is not a good driver of the car of your life. If your life is a car, you don't want ambition at the wheel. You want ambition in the back seat, not at the wheel. Which is why Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is a deeper, truer, better vision for your life. When ambition is at the wheel, then you are center stage of your life. And everything about your life, your commitments or moving away from a commitment, is all self-serving. So you have to ask yourself, you know, am I moving just for the next most spectacular thing, or am I moving because of God's leading in my life, confirmed by community and people around me who love me and know me? We have these needs for belonging and security and uh, We need these things so badly that as orphans, we think, I got to get them for myself. God's not going to take care of me. But an heir says, I know God will take care of me. And my belonging and my security and my significance are found in him and only in him. 
Greg Boyd said, when you die to all, you can risk all because it's no longer a risk at all. So the Bible talks about I was crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Because when you died all with Christ, you can risk all. It's not really a risk at all. Because God's love compels us, Paul said. We're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. So now we live our lives in him, service of him and others. So here's the question. Where do you get your life? And who is at the center of your life? Every week we come to the table of communion and we're reminded here that Jesus says your nourishment, your fulfillment, your food, it comes from me. And the reason we go eat other foods that aren't good for us, ultimately unfulfilling to us, is because we don't have enough of the good food. And you don't just eat the meal one time. If you ate dinner last night, you're going to be hungry today. It's daily feasting on the Lord, returning to him over and over and over again. And to the degree that I commit myself passionately to that, I experience him. But when my allegiance is divided, I can't fully experience the life he talks about. If you are full of life in Christ, if you are feasting on him, experiencing nourishment from him, if you are full of life in Christ, you could just play this out in several scenarios. If you're full of life in Christ and you're in a difficult marriage, you are free to stay in that marriage and work on it. You are able to do that because... You don't get your life from that marriage. You are full from Christ. And if you are full of life in Christ, and God says, I want you to downsize. I want you to deaccumulate so that you can free up resources for work in my kingdom. You're able to do that because your life doesn't come from your material possessions. Your life doesn't come from the accumulation of more, 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 better, bigger best. You're already full of life in Christ. And if you're a part of a church community and a better show moves into town, they got a way better preacher over there. Not as good of music, but a way better. <laughs> you, you, you're, you've already left the trading up game. Now, if God moves you there, you should go but you have already left behind the trading up, chasing opportunity thing. So you are able to commit yourself and experience what can only be known inside of passionate commitments. You're able to do that. You've left that trading up, chasing opportunity thing behind. You are full of life in Christ. If you're full of life in Christ and God leads you and your family to live in a dangerous place, somewhere else in the world, you're able to do that. You're able to go. You're able to uproot your family and go to that place he's calling you because your life is not found in your safety and security. 
you are finding your life in him. You are full of life in him. If you're full of life in Christ and somebody comes after your life, you don't have to react in fear and retaliation. You don't have to attack when you are attacked. You can say like Jesus did, Father, forgive them. You can forgive. Why? Because you already are full of life in Christ. Living for others is what God's designed us for. And if you want to live less like an orphan and more like an heir, then orient your life less around selfishness and more around servanthood. Because according to Jesus, this is life in, in his kingdom. It's life in the kingdom of God. And according to him, this is the life that is truly life. Let's pray together as we close. God, we thank you that you've made a way for us to be adopted into your family. We marvel at the love that would come and rescue us at our worst. We're awed by a love that would run to us in the midst of our shame and keep no record of it. And it's your love that compels us. And God, we confess that we have put ourselves at the center of our lives. And we've been chasing opportunities, constantly trading up, looking for the next thing that might fill us when you say that you are the bread of life. So this morning we turn from that constant chasing to chasing you. That you are the only one, God, who can fill and fulfill us. And for just a couple moments of quiet this morning, if it would be meaningful to you, I just invite you in prayer before God to ask a couple questions of yourself. Where are you finding life? And who is at the center of your life?
Lord Jesus, thank you for your nourishment. And as we come to the table to be fed by you through the bread and through the wine. We receive your love and your grace. And oh God, how we want to be people who just extend your love and grace in the world because we've been compelled through your love towards us. Would you help us to find our fulfillment, our filling, our food to quench these hungers in you? And would you help us to live in service of you and others in this life, this one and only life you've given us? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.